Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This week, I decided to bump up a topic that I was going to do here in a couple of weeks. I was going to wrap up our series on why we feel guilty about resting with the topic of how our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system works and how we can calm our nervous system and move out of trauma into a state of calm and rest. But this week has been a difficult one. For those of us who live in the United States, I feel like I've been in a boxing ring and I feel like I've taken one hit after the other to my nervous system. I've felt myself in fight or flight, mostly in fight. There have been times I have wanted to strap on my boxing gloves and really take a swing at someone. And the days when I would usually research, the days when I would sit down and read and curl up with my books and my papers and really get involved in that. I spent those hours trying to calm my nervous system, listen to my emotions, figure out what I was feeling and what I wanted to do going forward and what I needed to feel safe and what all the different parts of me were saying. And it was actually in the middle of a calming exercise that I realized this is what I wanted to bring to you. Because if I'm dealing with a cacophony of emotions... I can't be alone. My guess is that there are many of you listening who also feel this, and it can be compounded by so many factors that many of us here on this podcast share. We're all continuing to sort through religious and childhood trauma. That alone can keep our nervous system on high alert, and we're learning how to calm that. But then on top of that, we've just endured almost two and a half years of ongoing worldwide pandemic financial struggles, political unrest and uncertainty, climate change, food shortages, and a host of other concerns. And sometimes when it feels like the hits just keep on coming, our sympathetic nervous system may get stuck in a state of alertness, which makes it difficult for us to calm and rest. And so this week, I wanted to help explain what goes on When we get into fight or flight, what's going on with our brain, with our nervous system? How does that all work? How does it affect us when we get stuck in that cycle of being hyper alert, looking for danger around every corner? When we feel unsafe in the everyday and we're always preparing to fight or flee? I also wanted to explain the tools that we can use to bring ourselves back into a place of calm where we can rest and we can sleep and we can start to breathe deeply again and feel safe in our bodies and in our surroundings 
even when we are in an environment where our nervous system is taking hit after hit after hit. We're not powerless in this situation. There are things that we can do to calm ourselves so that we can get the rest that we need. So we have the energy and clarity of mind to make the changes necessary in our personal lives and in the world around us. Now, here are some signs you might be stuck in sympathetic overload, which is living your life in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And that would be some problems with anxiety and inability to relax, which is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. Feeling jumpy or jittery. Restless sleep, so you're able to go to sleep, but you toss and turn all night or you wake up several times in the night. Insomnia, not being able to go to sleep at all. Not being able to sit still. Constant feeling of fear. Panic attacks. High blood pressure. High cholesterol and poor digestion. So if you have irritable bowel syndrome or you just feel like you have upset stomach a lot, this might be something that's going on. You might be stuck in sympathetic overload. So in this episode, I'll explain the basics of how our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system work together and some methods you can use at home to strengthen your parasympathetic response to calm the fight, flight, or freeze and to allow you to rest and relax. Now, before we go any further in the episode, I have a quick and easy ask. If you feel this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, and if you feel these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high-demand religion and family trauma, please take a couple of short minutes and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. It's so easy and it's tax deductible in the United States. Go to emancipateyourmind.org. The donation area is on the right-hand side at the top of the page under the words, support the podcast and give a gift. Click the monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and broadcast each month so we can make sure that no person goes through religious deconstruction without emotional and mental support. Today, we'll be supporting those of us who have gone through trauma by understanding how the trauma response works and how we can calm it. Now, let's first talk about the sympathetic nervous system, which is otherwise known as the stress response. This information is coming from Harvard Health. So what happens first is our eyes and our ears, they take in information and they send signals to the amygdala. And you've heard me talk about the amygdala before. What the amygdala is, is basically our primitive or our lizard brain. It's in charge of survival, our sexual instincts, as well as our emotional responses. And what it is, is it's a tiny pair of almond-shaped regions that are deep inside our brain. So basically the way our brain is structured is we have the amygdala kind of right in the middle at the top of our brain stem. And then around that are the mammalian parts of our brain that are part of connecting and building relationships. And then on top of that is our human brain, like the prefrontal cortex and the parts that are in charge of executive function. Now, our primitive brain is small. It reacts very quickly. It's automatic. It's not something we typically have control over. So it happens in a split second, and it usually comes from like subconscious type thinking. It's instinctual. Whereas 
our mammalian and our human brains take a lot longer to process and come online because there's so much information that they're processing through. So in that split second, what happens is this part of the brain takes in that information from the eyes and ears or the nose or whichever senses are sending the information to our amygdala. And it decides how to interpret the signals that our senses are giving us. And it usually uses our subconscious brain. So it uses context from things that we have experienced in the past and makes snap judgments about those things. If it perceives danger, it sends a distress signal to our hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus acts like a command center that communicates with the rest of the body through the autonomic nervous system to make sure the person has the energy to fight or flight. So this is fascinating. Again, this is happening in a split second. In fact, our amygdala and our hypothalamus, they get to work often even before like our visual centers are able to comprehend what we're seeing. This is the reason we're able to jump out of the way of a speeding car before we fully registered that the car is there. It's because we see the car, our amygdala is like danger. That's going to flatten us like a pancake. And our hypothalamus starts the process of sending adrenaline and cortisol into our blood system and making all of the changes that come with that physiologically for us to react very quickly and to move out of the way so we can preserve our life. Again, the amygdala is in charge of survival, which is why it's in charge of things like hunger and thirst and sexuality and our emotions. All of those things are part of survival. Now, what happens next is absolutely fascinating to me. So the hypothalamus, what it does is it communicates through our nervous system to the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands, they pump out adrenaline into the bloodstream. And as it begins pumping through the body, there's a number of physiological responses that happen. You've all experienced an adrenaline rush before. Think about what happens to you whenever you get that hit of adrenaline. Your heart beats faster than normal, which basically pushes more blood to your extremities to get you ready to fight or flee. Your pulse rate and your blood pressure go up as well so that you're getting more oxygen and nutrients to all of your body. So that heart rate and that blood pressure go up so that more blood is pumping through your veins. You begin to breathe more rapidly. And actually what happens is the small airways in your lungs, they open up wide so that you can take in more oxygen than normal. And that extra oxygen is then sent to the brain to increase your alertness. So your sight, hearing, and other senses become sharper, but here's something crazy. Your senses become sharper, but your cognitive function actually decreases. So you're more alert and you're taking in more information from your surroundings, but you're not able to critically think about what is going on around you. You're working from your instincts, not from your critical thinking centers because your critical thinking centers actually go offline while you're in fight or flight. Adrenaline also triggers the release of blood sugar and fats from temporary storage sites to supply energy to the body. So your blood sugar is going to go up and you're actually going to have more fat in your bloodstream because you might need that as energy stores for your cells if you're running for a long distance or if you're fighting something that's a threat. And like I said, these changes are happening so quickly that we usually aren't even aware of them. I want you to think about the last time you got really angry 
all of these physiological responses probably happened. Your heart started beating faster. You could feel that rush of blood in the heat in your cheeks and in your hands being hot or sweaty. You could feel that adrenaline coursing through your veins in like your jittery hands or like that feeling of being jittery inside of your body. You could feel yourself breathing faster. This is a great exercise the next time you're angry to recognize this happening. You can feel this process happening when you become aware of it. Now, this is also why we don't want to make decisions and we don't want to have conversations necessarily when we're angry. We need to slow things down and deep breathe because we're in fight or flight. We have all of these things going on and our critical thinking centers are offline because they take too much energy. We are operating from a part of our brain that is the size of an almond. We've got all this brain mass. We're operating from two tiny almond-shaped parts deep inside our brain. We have the thinking capacity of an alligator when we're in this stress state. We're only thinking about protecting ourselves. That's why whenever we feel stressed, when we feel threatened, when we feel angry, We're likely to snap back at other people. We're likely to say and do things that we wouldn't normally when we're thinking from our rational mind because all of our connective social centers are offline and all of our critical thinking skills and executive function are offline. We are literally thinking about survival. That's it. Now, what happens is after we have this initial surge of adrenaline, the hypothalamus activates something called the second component of the stress response known as the HPA axis. And what this does is it basically keeps that gas pedal pushed down, keeps the adrenaline flowing, keeps the cortisol flowing, keeps our ability to critically think and to connect kind of offline or at a bare minimum so that all of our energy is being used for fight or flight. And it's going to do this until the danger has passed. And as long as the body perceives danger, it's going to keep this cycle going, releasing adrenaline and cortisol into our bloodstream, which this is why they say that people who lead high stress lifestyles are more prone to having high cholesterol count, higher blood pressure, higher risk of heart disease, because think about that. If you're constantly in a state of stress, your body is constantly in a state of fight or flight. It's constantly dumping cortisol and adrenaline into your bloodstream, which is releasing more blood sugar, releasing more fat from your stored cells, and you are clogging up your arteries. You are constantly under this state of hypertension because remember, it increases your blood pressure so that you have more blood at your extremities. And this causes all kinds of physiological issues. Also, when we're in a state of stress, our sexual organs do not function as well as they might otherwise. So if you're having some sexual dysfunction, that could also be because of your perpetual state of stress. We reproduce from a state of calm because biologically we don't want to produce babies unless it's safe for babies to be born. And so when we're under a state of stress, it's harder to get sexually aroused, it's harder to perform sexually, and it's actually harder to get pregnant as well because our bodies have a very difficult time when we're in the state of fight or flight. The other thing it does is it shuts down our digestive system. And what it does is we don't necessarily need to be digesting. We need to be using the energy that's already been broken down and stored. And so a lot of people who are under chronic stress will develop things like irritable bowel syndrome. They'll develop digestion problems, ulcers, 
things that are happening within the stomach and in the digestive tract. So if some of those things are going on for you, again, it could be chronic stress. It could be because either you're living a chronically stressful lifestyle, either because you come from a society that prizes being busy, that prizes working hard, that prizes not taking care of ourselves, that prizes giving to others and serving others at the expense of our own well-being. Another reason we might be under constant stress is because of trauma. Now, when we experience something traumatic, if we don't get to a place where we're able to kick on our parasympathetic responses and calm, like for instance, when we feel like we're stuck or we're trapped or we can't get out, or if the traumatic thing happens over and over and over again, and our body is constantly looking for that danger, we can sometimes feel like it's never really over. And the part of our brain that puts a timestamp on it that says, okay, the danger happened, but now it's over and now you're safe, and that comes from our parasympathetic nervous system, when that doesn't happen, we can perpetually feel like we're stuck in a state of danger and we can have all of these symptoms as well. We can feel like we're stuck in this fight, flight, or freeze mode, and it can make it really difficult for us to rest, really difficult for us to relax. Uh, to go to sleep at night, and over time it becomes a vicious cycle because we're not getting the rest and relaxation and the sleep that we need. It creates more stress in our bodies, which creates more of this response. Now, there's obviously benefits to our sympathetic nervous system as well. It's a survival mechanism. It helps us survive dangerous things like cars speeding towards us, but it also helps us set boundaries. It helps us decide what is unjust, what needs to change, what we're not okay with, what makes us feel unsafe. And it gives us that hit of adrenaline that makes us feel powerful and big so that we can then fight the things that feel unjust to us. All of that adrenaline and cortisol moves us into action. It gives us the energy and strength to move and do something. And this response when it's coupled with like mild stress, like let's say you have a deadline at work, This is going to get you off your butt, keep you from watching the movies that you like to watch, and actually get stuff done. It's going to produce a response that says, okay, it's time to move into action. We have things to do. It gets you to do that, but then a healthy system would then move into the parasympathetic response where you also have periods of calm and rest and digestion afterwards. So it's not unhealthy to have these stress responses. We need them. It's part of a healthy life. What's unhealthy is staying stuck in this response. It's when we're stuck in this response for long periods of time that it causes the health problems that we talked about earlier. So let's talk about what happens next. When the amygdala senses that the danger has passed, it triggers the parasympathetic nervous system to calm the body, to lower cortisol levels, and to restart digestion. It communicates with everything else in our body through our longest nerve, which is called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve actually means wanderer. And it's because it kind of wanders all through our body and it touches several big organs. It's connected to our vocal cords, our heart, our lungs, our stomach, our digestive tract, and our sexual organs, among other things. So basically, this nerve is connected to all of the things that are connected to resting, digesting, and the reproduction of our species. When we've been in trauma, a lot of times what happens is our vagus nerve loses something called tone. 
So kind of like a muscle, when you don't use it, it loses muscle tone. The same thing sort of happens with our vagus nerve. Remember, neurons that fire together, they wire together. And the more we fire together those neurons, the stronger those connections become. Something similar is happening in our vagus nerve. The more we use it, the stronger it becomes and the more toned it becomes. So we're going to talk about some methods you can use to actually activate your vagus nerve and bring about parasympathetic responses. And a lot of this is coming from Amanda Burns. She's a registered nurse and a therapist over in Great Britain, and her practice is called Self Matters Counseling. So we're going to talk about some of the methods that she uses with her clients that I found incredibly helpful in my own healing And I hope that they're helpful for you, especially as we continue to experience stress in the world around us. So the first one is cold exposure. There's something about the cold that brings up something called the dive response. The dive response is what happens when mammals go under the water. We hold our breath and our heart rate adjusts and it sort of calms our body so that we're not expending too much energy so we can stay under the water for longer. The cold response brings this up for us. Have you ever been in something really cold and it makes you like <gasps> gasp, like as if you're going to go underwater? This is what we're talking about. More oxygen in the lungs, it changes the heart rate and it allows us to like calm. Our whole body calms so that we're not using too much oxygen or too much energy. So cold exposure really activates the vagal nerve and activates that parasympathetic nervous system so that we get into more of a rest state. And there's lots of ways you can use cold to stimulate that vagus nerve. One of them might be splashing cold water on your face. I find this one really helpful, particularly if I wake up with anxiety or if I'm having anxiety at night. So either one of those, if I don't have makeup on my face, if I'm not dressed up to go someplace, I will use splashing cold water on my face as my go-to. This is my favorite method. Another one is to take a cold shower. Many of you might have heard of a guy called Wim Hof, and he actually uses cold with deep breathing to bring on that parasympathetic response. That immersion in cold along with the deep breathing brings you to a state of calm and allows you to move through anxiety disorders and into a more mindful state. So you can kind of mimic that by taking a cold shower and bringing your vagal nerve online. You can even couple that with breathing in order to bring about a parasympathetic response. You can use an ice pack against your face right on the middle of your forehead. So put the ice pack right on the middle of your forehead. That will help. You can submerge your mouth and tongue with a cold beverage or ice. Um, Whenever I'm out and about, the way I'll use cold is I will get an ice cube or a cold beverage and I'll either gargle the beverage. So I'll gargle because, again, remember, your vagal nerve is connected to your vocal cords. So gargling that cold back there where your vocal cords are actually touches your vagal nerve and can kind of stimulate that parasympathetic response. Or I'll take an ice cube and just hold it on my tongue and allow it to slowly melt and I just focus on that. That can also be really helpful. Or you can go outside with lighter clothing. So if it's colder outside, you can go outside where that cold can touch your skin and that can be really helpful as well. We talked about breathing. 
So slow, deep, rhythmic, diaphragmatic breathing. So a prolonged exhale with the use of a straw is a great way to achieve this. So if you want to breathe in through your nose for a long count and then exhale as long as you possibly can through a straw, that can really signal to your body that you are safe and that it's okay for it to get into a state of rest. Another maneuver that my husband actually likes to use is called a Valsalva maneuver. I don't know if you know what Valsalva is. It's one of Kevin's favorite words. He learned it when he was in the military and he was flying in planes all the time. But basically, it's in your inner ear. You know whenever your ears pop? That's called Valsalva. So what you're going to do is you exhale against a closed airway by keeping your mouth closed and pinching your nose while trying to breathe out. It's like what you do to try to pop your ears. You do that and it increases the pressure inside your chest cavity. And what that does is it stimulates your vagus nerve. That's something that you can try. I don't use this method, but Kevin likes it a lot. Sleep, as we talked about, is super important. It's not just the quantity of sleep, but it's also the quality of sleep. Remember, the less sleep we get, the more stressed our body feels because our body repairs itself while we're sleeping. So if we're not getting good quality sleep, it's going to show up as stress inside of our body and kind of create an even bigger problem, which can lead to even less sleep. So it becomes a vicious cycle. Practicing good sleep hygiene is going to make it more likely for you to be able to get a good night's sleep. So good sleep hygiene, in case you don't know what that means, means going to bed around the same time every night, waking up around the same time every morning, even on the weekends, And then making sure your bedroom is quiet, dark, relaxing, and has a comfortable temperature. All of these things can lead to better sleep. Also, Amanda Burns says to try to sleep on your right side. Research shows that since our vagus nerve runs down the right side of our neck, sleeping on it can help activate it. So avoid sleeping on your back because that makes it worse. If you're having a hard time sleeping, if you're feeling stressed or anxious all the time, try not to sleep on your back. Try to sleep on your right side and see if that helps. So exercise and other activities have actually been shown to stimulate the vagus nerve too. Many brain health experts actually recommend exercise as the number one piece of advice for optimal brain health. And we're not talking about hitting the gym hard. We're talking about going on a walk. We're talking about doing some yoga. It does not have to be hard, heavy exercise. It's just about moving your body, getting the blood pumping, allowing yourself to breathe deeply, and just make sure that whatever you choose is something you enjoy. It really doesn't matter how heavy or light the exercise is as long as it's consistent and it's something you enjoy. And the reason this is so important is they found that exercise stimulates gut flow and it stimulates the vagus nerve. So all of these are about stimulating your vagus nerve and allowing yourself to get into that place of rest. Some other things that might fall under this category might be things like mindfulness practice or meditation or things like yoga or tai chi or even just spending time in nature. Another thing that I do to calm my nervous system when I'm feeling really overwhelmed, and I did a lot of this yesterday. I go outside barefoot and I squish my toes in the grass and I allow myself to pay attention to my five senses. So what does the grass feel like on my toes? Can I smell things? How does the sunshine feel on my skin? What can I hear? What can I see? Remember being mindful 
and actually consciously paying attention to the sounds, the sights, the smells, the tastes, and the things that we feel can send information to our amygdala that in this moment, I am safe, which can allow our parasympathetic nervous system to come online. So when I was feeling overwhelmed and I was feeling angry and helpless and feeling scared about what the future might look like, sitting in the grass with my toes squidging in the blades, allowing myself to feel the sun on my face, the wind through my hair, hearing the birds sing and the dogs bark, all of these things allowed me to recognize that in this moment, I am safe. In this moment, I'm okay. That doesn't mean that there isn't a threat or that there isn't danger, but that in this moment, I'm okay. And that from this place of safety, I can now bring my executive thinking brain back online where we can begin to problem solve and work through our emotions. What do our emotions mean? What do we want to do with them? What do they need to feel safe? Our amygdala doesn't do that. Our amygdala just interprets information and then sends out emotional chemicals. That's it. It doesn't interpret what our emotions mean. It sends us emotions for our executive brain to interpret. So if you're stuck in stress, you often probably don't know what your emotions mean. You might be aware that you're feeling something, but it may be hard to put words to what you're feeling. It may be hard to figure out what you want or what's not okay. It may be hard to figure out what you want to do with that energy. So if you find that when you're in mindfulness practice, it's hard to sit still, it's hard to actually hear what's going on, it may be because you're still stuck in a sympathetic response where you feel like you're threatened. So try some of these activities. Gargle some cold water, squid your feet in the grass, allow yourself to really pay attention to your five senses, do some deep breathing, and see if that doesn't help you calm down and feel just a little bit more comfortable in your skin. One other exercise that just came up for me that I actually want to share with you because I use this one a lot is humming. Like I said, your vocal cords, they're attached to your vagus nerve. So if you find yourself really needing to calm and comfort yourself. This combines deep breathing while also stimulating that vagal nerve. I know a lot of times whenever we're shown images of people meditating, sometimes we see them making the noise, that right there is an example of controlling our breath as well as stimulating the vocal cords, which are attached to the vagus nerve. So this can actually help when you're trying to do mindfulness practice, especially if you're feeling antsy or anxious or unsafe. Try humming to yourself. Just, it doesn't have to be om. It can be any noise that vibrates those vocal cords and allows you to exhale slowly through it. Those are my ideas for today. Those are the ideas I'm going to be practicing in my backyard and here in my closet for the next several days and perhaps the next several years as we work through all of the things that feel like they need to be fixed in our world. It can be overwhelming at times and it's okay that it feels overwhelming at times, but we don't have to stay in a place of overwhelm. We don't have to constantly be in a place of fight or flight. 
when we feel like we're in a place of fight or flight, that's not wrong. It's not bad. Our nervous system is built in such a way to preserve our life, to keep us safe, and to motivate us to do work in the world. But if it's getting in the way of you being able to rest, being able to relax, being able to think clearly, to digest properly, to enjoy sexuality, then please consider some of these things. Right now, our nervous systems are taking hit after hit after hit. And we don't have to live with the stress. There are ways for us to manage that. And I hope these are helpful for you, particularly as we move forward. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I will talk to you again next Sunday.